back when we first launched Brains Bite back in 2019, in one of our earliest episodes, we interviewed a certified sexual addiction counselor and a professor of gender and sexuality studies and asked them the question, is porn addiction real or a myth? To this day, it's been one of our most popular episodes ever, so we decided to revisit the topic and speak to Joshua Shea, a recovering porn addict who is also a coach, author, and speaker who shares his story and educates others about pornography addiction. In this episode, Joshua shares with us his own story of pornography addiction, detailing how it began, why it developed in the first place, and how he overcame it. And he also opens up about his own perspective on the state of pornography addiction in the world today. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks very much for having me, Sam. My name is Joshua Shea. I am a resident of the Northeast part of the United States. I was a pornography addict for 24 years. I began at 12 years old after a cousin showed me some magazines. Uh, keep, in, you know, keep in mind, this is the late 80s, so we didn't have the internet yet. And uh, something happened to me the day that I saw that stuff for the first time. And I didn't really understand it then. I didn't understand it till 30 years later when I got into recovery. Um, but I had tapped into something immediately that I recognized was going to help me the rest of my life. That was that was some kind of panacea that I, I didn't know existed. And the only other time I've ever felt this was about two years later when I was at a wedding and I got drunk for the first time, I had that same feeling of, oh my goodness, now I understand why people do this. Now I understand why people use this. It's the only two times in my life I've ever had anything like that. I don't think it's coincidental that my two uh, vices through life were porn and, and alcohol. As far as pornography goes, if you look at statistics by Dr. Patrick Carnes, who is the kind of godfather of research in this area. He's been doing it back into the mid nineties, um, again, before the internet was there, but he recognized this was happening. And uh, I saw one of his studies early in recovery and it was uh, roughly 70% of men uh, in, the, in North America who are sex or porn addicts have had some kind of physical abuse in their background. Over 80% have had some kind of sexual abuse in their background and around 95% have some kind of emotional or mental abuse in their background. This abuse, uh, because it usually happens in early childhood, uh, becomes you know, repressed very quickly. It turns into repressed trauma, sometimes to the point that we don't even recognize we have this trauma. I was very textbook when you look at all of this stuff when it comes to uh, porn addicts. I was uh, both sexually and mentally abused at the hands of a babysitter when I was young. I didn't have uh, coping methods. I didn't have survival skills that worked. So as a five-year-old kid, I had to kind of de devise them on my own when I was 12 years old and I discovered pornography, 14 years old, discovered alcohol, I kind of stopped developing coping methods. I kind of stopped developing uh, survival skills because I found these two things. That is absolutely the recipe for addiction. And uh, I was a porn addict uh, and a alcoholic straight up through 
uh, late March of 2014. I quit porn about 12 days before the alcohol. Uh, I've done a couple of rehab uh, stints, one for alcoholism, one for porn and sex addiction. I decided that uh, my life was as a journalist, as an editor and publisher of several magazines. I decided that the one thing that I could do for this world was to write a book about it. Um, so I wrote, a, I wrote a book. It came out in early 2018 about my journey. I thought that would be the extent of it. I figured nobody would read it. It was more of a cathartic thing for myself. And turns out people read it. And it turns out I hit a nerve. And I started to suddenly have a bunch of men messaging me uh, about these issues, had some women as well. I also found that I had a lot of partners contacting me. And this was the first time I learned about betrayal trauma and how being a porn addict or a sex addict can very much affect the, the partner as well when the truth comes out. So I started to learn that uh, and study that at the same time. And after writing my second book with a uh, marriage and family therapist about uh, the betrayal trauma, um, I decided that I wanted to make my life working with people in this area, whether it was people who were the addicts or whether it was people who lived with the addicts and were directly affected by them. I had seen so much of that in my life and I knew and still know how few people are talking about this, that between my uh, experiences and the fact that I'm a research geek. I love to read medical papers. I love to read studies. I figured that I could blend my personal experience and my love of learning about this kind of stuff and uh, go out there. And today I, uh, you know, I'm a few weeks uh, away from having just released my fourth book. I am still doing presentations, thankfully with COVID lifting a little bit. I'm, I'm back into colleges and into libraries and, and into churches talking about this stuff. Um, and I never would have thought my life would bring me here today, but this is such a massive problem. And I just am one of those people who I would love to say this is all altruistic, but I wouldn't be able to live with myself knowing what I know, knowing the statistics I know, having the experience I've had, and not going out there and sharing it with people. So, and then you asked me to come talk to you, and it was a wonderful opportunity because I love you know, sharing this information with audiences who are brave enough to listen, because unfortunately, pornography is naked people doing naked things. And that is still a giant taboo in most people's worlds. Yeah, I also want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story and, and uh, yeah, being brave enough to talk about this taboo subject. Uh, I'm sure that you're very experienced by now. So it it's really doesn't probably feel that way anymore. Um, and also just for yeah, breaking the this taboo down. But I do have a few things that I want to, I suppose, more clarify than anything. So obviously, you spoke about this is kind of works as a coping mechanism. And I think any unchecked coping mechanism, of course, is dangerous. But I suppose, why do you feel like this is a bad sort of coping mechanism to have? Like in the sense of why do you believe it's, it's wrong looking at pornography? And is it the case for everyone? Do you feel? Do you feel that like, even if it isn't being used as a coping mechanism and it is being consumed by someone in a relatively infrequent basis, is that still a bad thing, would you say? 
Uh, well, you know, you've, you've, you've asked 19 very good questions there. Um, I, I, number one, uh, I don't make my uh, journey and my story about being necessarily anti-porn. Um, I don't make it about judgment of people who use porn. Um, I, I, I just know that nobody heals, nobody changes, nobody gets better when they are judged, when they are shamed. Um, most people feel bad enough about their use that I tell people I'm not necessarily anti-pornography. I am pro-healthy sexuality and healthy sexual education. And we don't have that in this world these days. Because, you know, back when I was getting into this, we had magazines, we had videotapes. You have if you, you know, I was 15 years years old and I thought I was awesome because I figured out how to get one of the uh, video stores in my town to rent me porno movies. You know, I thought I thought I was the smartest kid in the world. Well, today we give every 12 year old the greatest porn computer in the world uh, when it comes to the smartphone. And, you know, it, I, I say this jokingly, but it's very true. You know, if you can spell, you know, man, sex and woman, much like any six year old could, you can find man, sex, woman on the internet. And it just created high-speed internet and our availability and access to it, coupled with the natural sexual uh, curiosity we all have, absolutely made the online world of pornography explode. And it's only really been there 20, 25 years. And unfortunately, most people still have so many taboos about this stuff that they don't see a difference between what it's like picking up a Playboy magazine if you're, if you're 15 years old or going on to a high-speed internet site. And it's an absolute world of difference. Um, and the statistics are bearing this out. Um, if you look at statistics with things like uh, erectile dysfunction among men under 40, um, when I was 20 years old, erectile dysfunction men under 40 was three to 5%. Now you're talking about it being 20 to 25%. Um, that's the pornography. That's the effect it's having. There are now studies coming out, and I've, I've actually been working on some of these with people and interviewing uh, people in colleges when, I, when I'm on campuses. And it's ridiculous how... Uh, it's changing just everyday life on college campuses. Um, and I know it's changing everyday life in regular people's lives because they don't know what they're getting involved with. When you look at the uh, chemicals that are released when you use pornography, the, the, the mix of oxytocin, dopamine, um, the other four pleasure chemicals in your head, if you look at the exact setup of those chemicals, the closest addiction that you can find is cocaine addiction. And I just think most, most people don't know this and they need to know this. It's not just looking at some pictures and touching yourself and feeling good. Pornography is like any other addiction. You know, uh, food addiction doesn't take place in your stomach and, and cocaine addiction doesn't take place in your nose. Porn addiction doesn't take place between your legs. It all takes place in your mind. And addiction to pornography is 
Um, just a symptom of a bigger problem. And that bigger problem is the trauma from early childhood abuse. Um, and in the past, people might find other things to be addicted to, but pornography is now one of those things. So, and there is not very much education about it out there. You know, I don't go to people and say, well, we need to talk about the trafficking. We need to talk about the uh, circumstances upon which some of these actors are making these films. And because these kinds of, or, you know, a lot of the arguments in the seventies and eighties by feminists or, or far right-wing conservative groups about what pornography was, none of these uh, reasons to stop ever actually stopped people. I don't think anybody is ever gonna say that trafficking is a good thing. It's a heinous, horrible thing. But if you can find me one porn addict or even one porn user who stopped because of trafficking, I would be shocked. So I think there's also a lot of messaging out there that uh, when it comes to the actual use kind of uh, dilutes it and kind of gets away and makes it a little more political, a little more social. When the reality is you've got somebody who is hiding in their room or maybe even someplace inappropriate, like their, their work bathroom or their school bathroom, looking, using pornography, feeling bad about themselves, feeling like they have a connection to it they can't explain. And the numbers bear out that our youngest generation of, of, of uh, people under 30 are just being besieged by this. And if we don't start talking about this, if we don't start dealing with this, I think in another 10, 15 years, when these people who are 25 and 30 are having their teenage children uh, you know, exposed to this for the first time, we're just going to be infecting another generation and we have to stop it here. Yeah, I want to mention a couple of points on, on what you said because it's kind of ironic that we're having this conversation now when you mention about viewing pornography in uh, in decent or inappropriate places i'm not sure when this episode is going to air but currently an issue within the uk is that um there's allegations that i think a member of our parliament was watching pornography um like in in parliament like while they're working like completely like this is where like our government takes place and it was around his co-workers and uh I think that that just sounds, it's just really bizarre timing, at least. Like I said, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, so it might be old news by then. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. A friend of mine sent me a link about that yesterday. And my first thought was actually, I'm, uh, I can't believe someone finally got caught. Because yeah. if, you look, if you look at workplace statistics right now, uh, in, in at least North America, um, over 20% of people say that they use pornography at work. And more than 10% of people say that they have actually uh, pleasured themselves to pornography at work. Um, so to have a government official do this, well, it's really not that surprising. I mean, I know it makes headlines because of who it is, but there are people doing this at work and at school and at other inappropriate places all over the world right now. But pornography addiction and myself also being an alcoholic, I couldn't hide my alcoholism. You slur, you stumble, you're, you, know, you don't have your, your words come out correctly. Um, you make bad decisions when you're intoxicated, but it's easy to hide porn addiction. It's pretty simple to hide porn addiction. Um, you just have to not get caught for the most part. 
Um, and addicts are brilliant manipulators. And, you know, if I could learn how to hide my stash of Playboy magazines from my mom when I was 14 or 15 years old, um, it wasn't going to be very difficult to hide my internet use from my family, friends, uh, employees, everybody else 25 years later. That was, that was actually very easy. And people sent me and people had interventions with me about the alcoholism. I didn't even know, Sam, that porn addiction was a thing until I went to rehab. And my caseworker at the alcohol rehab I was at asked me to meet with a certified sex addiction therapist off campus because he said I was just saying certain things and had certain attitudes that he didn't know enough about and wanted me to talk to somebody. When I went and saw this guy, you know, he helped, he was the one who helped me understand that number one, addiction is absolutely a disease. Uh, number two, that porn addiction, whether people want to believe it or not, is a real addiction out there. And uh, personally, he taught me that, uh, or showed me that my porn addiction predated uh, my alcohol addiction. And it had done far more damage in my life than my alcohol addiction. My narrative for 25 years was that I just made bad choices when I was drunk. So the pornography was just a bad choice. Well, you know, when you're drunk, most of your waking hours, I guess every decision is a bad one. And I just explained it away that way. And I think that we still live in a society. And I think this is international because I have clients who I coach in seven or eight different countries now. And it's amazing how many people still don't know porn addiction is a real thing. Porn addiction exists. You know, I've had people tell me, oh, porn addiction, that must be the most fun addiction to have. No, 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 it's actually not. It, it runs you. And it took me so many years to even find out it was there because I blamed everything on the alcohol. So we still have a long way to go educating people. And uh, that's why, you know, I, I do this kind of stuff. And I write these books and I love working with people, coaching one-on-one. -on -one. But I really like the presentations. I really like the interviews because I know I'm hitting the most people at, the, at one time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that was really important for people to hear the idea that this kind of porn addiction snuck up on you. And that kind of leads me to my next point. I'd love to know, like, what are the signs of porn addiction that people should know about? Absolutely. When I work with my clients, we go through uh, the 11 major signs of it. Um, some of them overlap a little bit. And usually if you have uh, about four of them, it indicates that there probably is a sign of, uh, of actual addiction to pornography. And a few of them are, I won't go through all 11, but uh, one of the big ones is just simply difficulty not thinking about pornography, you know, thinking about pornography in inappropriate times, thinking about pornography when you should be thinking about something else. You know, are you driving home from work, looking forward to your pornography session in five hours, but not thinking about what you're going to feed your family for dinner, or you're going to help the kids with homework, or whatever else it is, you find pornography stays on your mind. And, you know, most addicts say that even when they're not thinking about it, it can be triggered at any moment. And that's not true of, of most things. Um, dovetailing that is the fact of, you know, do you question that you have an addiction? If you're questioning, do I have a, a porn addiction? Well, 
I always do you do you question yourself about your vacuuming? Do you question yourself about, you know, do I brush my teeth too much? Or am I always thinking about wanting to ride on fire trucks? Uh, you know, I mean, it seems laughable. But the reason that you don't ask yourself those kinds of questions is because it's clear you don't have an addiction to those things. If you find yourself asking if you have an addiction, there's probably something to it there. Maybe it's not full blown yet. But maybe it is, you know, the, the, the embers are there burning. So if you're asking yourself, that's a big sign. Um, things like losing track of time if you're engaged with porn. Obviously, most people who use pornography don't end up as, as addicts. But what you hear with addicts is that they say, oh, I was going to sit down and use for 10 minutes. I was going to sit down and use for 15 minutes. And the next thing they know, two to three hours has passed and they haven't finished because another uh uh, symptom of porn addiction is that when you're engaged with it, you have to find the perfect piece to finish. And by the perfect piece, that doesn't have anything to do with content, really. What it has to do with is the idea that you have a piece that is going to activate those pleasure chemicals, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin, all of those that's really uh, where where you can see, you know, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, a big indication also is replacing other activities with pornography that you used to do. Maybe on Friday nights, you used to go out with your friends, you know, bar hopping, or you'd go with your family to see a movie or, you know, whatever, play in the local basketball recreation league. But now you would rather stay home and use pornography. You know, when something else is happening, but you get the urge for porn, you always choose porn and everything else takes a back seat. Um, in some cases, you do see people actually get physically injured. Um, you know, for those who masturbate frequently and over long durations, uh, both men and women, there is injury, you know, that causes friction burns, causes, you know, sores on the skin uh, where it's been handled too much. Um, and another uh, big one, which is one of the masks kind of with, uh, with porn and sex addiction, is that you get a lowered sex drive. And this is true across almost every addiction. You know, an addict's libido is significantly lowered. Ask a heroin addict how much sex they want to have. Ask a gambling addict how much sex they want to have. They don't. They want to enjoy their, their chemical or behavior of choice. Um, it just gets very muddy because everybody associates pornography with a sexual release. And that sexual release of orgasm, uh, especially with, with masturbation, um, for a porn addict, that is not to be confused with the pleasure of orgasm that comes from actual sex. Um, it's, it's ironic, but those people who are sex addicts, and, and by that I mean intercourse addicts, they have very low libidos. They don't want to have sex with their longtime partners, but they still feel like they need to be out there having dangerous sex. So they could be having sex every night, but they don't want to and they have no libido. Again, it's not, it's not that these uh, addictions take place anywhere in our body other than our mind. But when you think about it, you look at like a partner, if a partner sees that, um, well, you're using pornography almost every night, you're masturbating to pornography almost every night. I must be doing something wrong. I'm not good enough at sex. I'm not uh, 
I'm not, you know, measuring up. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. And that's where you get a lot of problems in relationships because, you know, the idea of, of sex, of naked people, of orgasm, they all serve different purposes with sex with a partner and with pornography as an addict. And that's where, you know, some of these things get sticky. And then ultimately, uh, it's the escalation of the use and the content itself. Much like an alcoholic like I was, you know, you can't stick with two or three beers very long. You need to start having more. And then eventually you can't have enough beers. You need to move on to the harder stuff. It's just like that with pornography. Most people who are true addicts have, you know, they are not watching one man, one woman have missionary style sex. They are, they over time escalate to, uh, you know, more extreme content, including stuff that they would run from in real life if they were presented with the opportunity to have, have sex in that manner or, or have sexual activity in that manner. But it's the only thing that can trigger those pleasure chemicals in their minds. So that, that, that's really one of the biggest. And that's where a lot of people kind of wake up and go, oh, wow. Yeah, I was, I used to watch for 15 minutes. It was just, you know, a, a naked woman walking on a beach, a couple of naked guys doing something. And now it's crazy, crazy stuff involving props, involving, you know, different types of people. And that's because like every addict, they need to escalate their behavior. So I, I hope those are a few that you can, uh, and your audience can understand. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. And if you are, make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode. You can find us on all your usual podcast sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and a whole lot more, including YouTube. And we want to hear what you think. So be sure to leave us a review. Just search Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sharing that. I do want to know on the other side of things, if people are listening to this and they feel that they don't fall into those categories, they might be tempted to just switch off now and be like, oh, well, this doesn't affect me. Like, why should non-addicts care about porn addiction? Because in my time working with people and in going through the recovery process myself, I have met men and women, and especially women, who don't come to terms with this until they're 40, 50, or 60, who explain it away. You know, guys like me, I'm 46 years old. You know, I, I discovered the internet when I was 19. But I look at somebody like my, my father or mother who are now in their 70s, and they're still figuring things out with the internet that I figured out 10, 15 years ago. So if you've got a guy who tended to look at his you know, Playboy collection now and then and couldn't throw it out or whatever, and maybe was a borderline addict or, you know, life was too busy when he was in his 30s or 40s. Now he's in his 50s or 60s. The kids have left home and he's learning this internet thing. And my God, the difference between a Playboy magazine and the difference between online hardcore pornography is like night and day. And it's like smoking a cigarette versus smoking crack. And some of these guys, some of these ladies, 40, 50, 60 years old, this is when they develop their addiction because they're exposed for the first time to the world of online high-speed pornography. So 
if if I described, you know, some of those symptoms and, and even just one of them might click with you, um, you know, that's something to pay attention to. And the other important thing to recognize is that as people, our instinct is to immediately tell ourselves we don't have an addiction, we don't have a problem. Our mind and our body wants to go through life as easy as possible. And if we can convince ourselves we don't have problems, that makes things easier. So I, I, I can't tell you, Sam, how many people uh, I sit with the first time in a session and they say to me, yeah, well, you know what? I, I just don't have any trauma. And it's like, if you look at those statistics I shared with you earlier, 99.3% of North American men who are porn addicts have childhood trauma. And I'll be honest, I've never met that 0.7% in my entire life. As far as I'm concerned, 100% of porn addicts have it. And uh, these these people, but well, I don't know. I, I un unfortunately, people tend to put a very very uh, rigid definition on trauma or abuse. You know, just because your uh, you know high school basketball coach didn't molest you, just because your mom or dad didn't beat the crap out of you, that doesn't mean there wasn't abuse in your life. Something is something as basic and happens as every day as bullying can cause, you know, mental trauma. That that's mental abuse. Um I'll tell you a very quick story, a client of mine, and he, he lets me tell this story uh, because it was like a hallelujah lights are on moment for him. Um, we, he said he had no trauma whatsoever. And we worked for a couple of months on this. And we finally, he or he finally reached the place where he could accept the fact that his trauma all came from a day uh, when he was in fifth or sixth grade in school. And his mom, who was a single mother, she sent him to school in a pair of pants that were way too big for him. And I don't know why, but he wasn't wearing any underpants that day. And in school, um, his pants would kind of droop in the back a little bit. And there was a group of, you know, three or four 12-year-old girls, and we all know how they can be when they get together. Um they absolutely terrorized him that day, made fun of the way that his butt looked, you know, made fun of the fact he was poor and couldn't, affect, uh, couldn't afford pants that fit. And going back to that day and looking at it, he realizes despite the fact that his father abandoned them, he always had resentment about his mother, thinking she didn't care enough about him. And it goes back to that day that she sent him in pants to school that were too big. If you, we traced his dating life and his, who his girlfriends were over, over a period of years, he always picked partners who he wasn't attracted to. He always picked partners who he could have done so much better, but those girls in fifth or sixth grade scared him off of the type of partner that he wanted. So he sought out women who were not the kind of partners he wanted. And he had all of this resentment towards his mom. And it's not because anybody beat him or touched him or anything like that. It's because he had one really bad day in fifth or sixth grade. And he started telling himself stories about it. You know, it goes back to the very famous saying, we are the stories we tell ourselves. He told himself this story for over 20 years and to the point where it was no longer a story. It was no longer an interpretation of events. 
it was an absolute fact of what happened. And that's where you see a lot of the trauma, a lot of people in denial, a lot of people don't want to admit something might have happened to them. Uh, that wasn't, you know, the kind of stuff that gets newspaper headlines, but did make a big difference in their life. Um, most people don't want to admit something's wrong because when something's wrong, you either ignore it or you take care of it. If you ignore it, you know that's the wrong thing. If you take care of it, especially something like an addiction that's been around for a long time, it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And it's not fun work. It's sad work. It's angering work. It's frustrating work. There are setbacks. There are things you discover you never thought would happen. There are aha moments that you never saw coming. It's a major, major process. And I think our bodies are just wired to not want to do that so we're very good at denial. We're very good at telling ourselves nothing is wrong. And that's why I always tell people, there is no stereotypical porn addict. I have met people 13, 14 years old. I have met people in their early 70s. I have met men, women. It doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter what they have for a profession. I've met doctors and lawyers and nurses, and I have met homeless people and school teachers and uh, politicians, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter your brain power. Anybody can be a porn addict. And the moment somebody says, well, that's not my problem. Uh, hopefully you're right, but you may just be in denial. I think that that example you gave uh, did such a fantastic job of highlighting the fact that trauma does come in so many different like shades and contexts. Because when you initially did mention at the start of our call about how prevalent trauma is among addicts, uh, my mind almost automatically jumps to severe cases of like mental or physical abuse. Um, but I think that that perfectly highlights exactly how trauma can be interpreted in so many different ways, uh, like you said, within the stories that we tell ourselves. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm really happy that your client uh, was willing to share that or willing to allow you to share it. Yeah, and I, I just want to add here that uh, what's really important and the thing that, you know, I do, I really do with my clients once we uh, get their day-to-day uh, -day triggers under control is that, you know, I tell them we're going to go back and we're going to work out the story of your trauma. We're going to work out the story of your abuse. We're going to work out how you became an addict because you became an addict because that stuff happened to you. But the reality is that story, you know, he says his mom uh, bought him pants that were five sizes too big. Is that what they really were? Maybe they were two sizes too big but it doesn't matter. He says that there were three girls who were mean to him. Might it have been one? Might it have been five? It doesn't really matter. What matters is that he was able to create a narrative for himself that explained why he became an addict, how he developed the attitudes towards people, towards life, towards whatever. Um, he now knows how he developed though, how he became the person he did. And yes, we could go back in a time machine and we could say, well, you have this fact wrong or you have this fact wrong. That doesn't matter. What you need to be able to do is to control your narrative. And if him telling himself it was three girls who were mean to him, that, that he needs to 
put this story together and this is how he's going to reach peace with himself. This is how he's going to get over this. I don't care if it was five or if it was one. If in his story, and if his story has to make sense with him having three girls make fun of him when he was in sixth grade, which maybe it was fifth grade, maybe it was seventh grade, none of these details really matter. What matters is that it's the truth in his mind because the trauma is true in his mind and the trauma was created by the story he told himself in his mind. So all we have to do is extract that story <coughs> and then figure out how that story informed his life, you know, that next year or 10 years later or 20 years later or today. How did things become the way they are? And once you can start to do this, once you can start to put these puzzle pieces together and recognize that there are connections all throughout life, um, that that's when you start to see some real recovery. Uh, our lives are not meant to be jigsaw puzzles where the pieces are all kept separately. But for many of us, not just addicts, but for many of us, we keep these pieces separately because it's easier to compartmentalize and it's easier to run our lives. I used to make the joke to people that, you know, if I died, if I would have died 10 or 15 years ago and everybody would have come to my memorial service, you would have had a bunch of people sharing stories about people they didn't recognize when they heard somebody else tell the story because I did such a, a you know, careful job of keeping my lives separate. I had my personal life with my family at my house. I had my personal life with my extended family, my personal life with my friends. Then I had my professional life. And then I was also a politician locally. So I had my political life. And then I had the me that nobody else knew and that was just lived inside of me. So I've got all these pieces that I'm managing and that's no way to run your life. What you have to do is put these pieces together because when you put the pieces of the puzzle together, that's the only time that you can see what the entire picture is supposed to look like. And that's when you can make your best strides. And when you recognize, you look at a jigsaw puzzle, that's a thousand pieces. There may be two pieces that don't touch each other and have 20 pieces between them, but you can still trace a path from one piece to the other. And that path is part of the overall bigger picture. So people have to put their bigger pictures together. They have to take these different parts of their life and, and connect them and see how the full story looks, how the full story unfolded. And when people do this, it's kind of amazing because you see them not even need to use the porn or not need to use another substance because you've kind of figured out what the problem is. You've kind of told yourself the story you need to tell yourself to be at peace. And once you're at peace, you don't need this numbing agent of addiction, whether it's porn or alcohol or drugs or whatever. When, you know, as I said, it's uh, the addiction is a symptom of the bigger problem. Once you take care of the bigger problem, you don't need to deal with symptoms because they go away. Yeah, well, you mentioned reminds me of a quote I heard at university while I was studying psychology that the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So that, that definitely stands out for me. And I also wanted to ask, you said that you've received a number of partners in the past who have reached out to you um, regarding their, their partner's porn addiction. What do you say to partners who discover their loved one is a porn addict? 
Well, that's where the first thing that I do is I tell I tell my own story uh, with my wife. Thankfully, she didn't have a huge amount of betrayal trauma. She works in healthcare. She's had some addicts in her family when she was younger, so she understood it to a degree. And I think she had, uh, while she didn't know that I was a porn addict, she it was obvious I was an alcoholic. So I think she was a little bit better prepared than most people when they discover a porn addiction. Uh, the first thing I have to do, and, and usually... 80, 85% of the people I deal with when we're talking about betrayal trauma is a female partner of a male addict. Um, I share the fact that I became a porn addict at four, at, excuse me, 12 years old. I met my wife when I was 26 years old. I had already been a porn addict for 14 years. So aside from just being deceitful and hiding it from her, she had no influence whatsoever. How could somebody who I, you know, I had an, a problem for 14 years and then I met her, how could she have anything to do with this problem? And the reality is when these uh, partners uh, are able to look back, when they do get some of the stories from their partners, you know, they come to realize that, okay, this actually, when you look at the facts, when you look at the science, when you look at the history, this was not a rejection of them. This was somebody who was sick before they even met them. This was somebody who was very good at hiding things because as addicts, we are brilliant when it comes to deception. We are brilliant when it comes to manipulation. We are brilliant when it comes to gaslighting. It's not hard to do, especially if you're not looking for it. So very early on, what I have to do is almost in a logical way, have them understand that they had nothing to do with this issue. And then we talk about why the issue was there with their partner. And then in most cases, and I've been certified uh, in this area, is in doing uh, therapeutic disclosures. You know, the worst thing that you can do is sit down with your partner who is an addict. You know, you can't find something to watch on Netflix on a random Tuesday night. So you start, you know, grilling them like it's Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And you don't have people there facilitating your conversation and it can go very bad because the partner is probably feeling resentment. The, pro the partner is still feeling lied to. And in a lot of cases, when the partner comes to discover, oh my goodness, I didn't know that this person had a porn issue for you know, the eight years we've been together. How did they hide this from me? And, and more importantly, what else did they hide from me? Were there affairs? Is there anything financial going on? And in, in some cases, yes, there is. And I, I work with the, the uh, I work with both partners um, individually, and then we come together and we have a very orchestrated disclosure where the partner who is the betrayed one gets to ask questions of the one who was the addict, who was the betrayer. And it can be very therapeutic in the correct conditions, uh, but in the wrong conditions, trying to do this yourself, like I say, on a random Tuesday night when you're tired, can do inoperable damage to a relationship. Yeah, I definitely think choosing those moments is important. And it could be hard for people to be restrained or even like clear and level-headed when it comes to things which are so deeply connected to emotions i think even the calmest of us can find that almost impossible uh so then what are the next steps if a person does have um a partner who is a porn addict like outside of what you just mentioned there 
Well, if they are feeling betrayal trauma, um, usually there's other trauma in their background as well. Usually there's other betrayal trauma in their background as well. And just because in my line of work, the betrayal is almost always hiding the fact that they used porn or hiding the fact there was an affair, betrayal trauma can be a million different things. You know, if your parents promised to you for two years that you were gonna go to Disney World and then the day before you were going to go, they told eight-year-old you, nope, we're not going. That can feel like a massive betrayal. There are people who feel betrayal when a close person to them dies. You know, if, you're, if your mom told you, I'll always be with you, I'll always be with you, and then there you are, 14 years old, and they die, well, guess what? Mom lied. She's not always going to be with you. And there are all kinds of things that can qualify as betrayal. It is essentially just when you have something that is a black and white constant that you trust and you would stake your life on, and then you find out that it's absolutely false and it shakes up your world. It can be so many different things. So we go back and we look at other betrayals that have happened in their lives. And the thing with betrayal is it's never the victim's fault. So we, we work through that. And, uh, and then we, we look at, you know, why did you make certain decisions in your life? Why did you choose this person as a partner? You know, why did you go into this line of work? How did you become the person you became? I really think that's at the root of almost all trauma of any kind of any of any way it happened was that we begin to tell ourselves stories to cope with life. We begin to create narratives that aren't true with our lives that are harmful, that uh, maybe even if they are true, don't serve us any real purpose. And you have to go back and look at that stuff and figure out what do you need to walk away from? How do we walk away from it? And what is important or what have you been looking at incorrectly? You know, it is uh, whether I'm dealing with a, a partner or I'm dealing with the addict, you know, I tell them the, the addiction stuff is really just scratching the surface of this. When I work with an addict, I tell them, you know, we're going to do about 20% trigger work. We're going to do 20% your behaviors with pornography. But 80% of this is going to be looking back at how you became the person who you are now, because you are using something to cope with your life now. You are using something to either numb yourself to the realities of your life, or, and this is the case a lot of times with things like gambling or things like video games or porn or sex, a lot of people use those to create false senses of power and false senses of control. So why do you need to create that false sense of control? What don't you have control of in your life? Um, the addiction is just the entryway. It's the mudroom at the front of your house where you leave your shoes. And then when you get into the house, that's your entire life. The addiction is just the door you walk through to start to really deconstruct your life and, and rebuild the story in a way that is number one, more accurate. And number two, explains to you how you got to where you are today. And hopefully that makes sense to people um, that, you know, it's not a matter of let me fill you up with drugs. This is not a physical ailment. You know, this is not something where people, the number one question I get mm. where it, it's almost frustrating to this point is, so uh, how long is it going to take before I start getting erections again? Or, okay, I don't want to be a porn addict anymore. How long is it going to take to make me better? And it's like, this, is, this isn't a broken arm. 
You know, we can't say, oh, you have this kind of fracture, so it will be this long in a cast, and then this many weeks of physical therapy, and you'll be just like brand new, you know, now, four months from now. This is all dealing with mental health. This is all dealing with mental issues. You know, I, I, I have dealt with men who have erectile dysfunction where two weeks of meeting with me and they're better. And I've got somewhere three months later, nothing is, nothing is better. You know, it's a different process for every individual person. And that's what's really important going into it, looking for relief, uh, looking for recovery, is that there is no roadmap for this. There are definite mm -hmm. tried and true ways that people go. And that's why you really need to click with your practitioner, be it a therapist, a coach, a psychiatrist, whatever it is. Um, you need to be able to click with them on a human level because more than a cardiologist, you know, more than any other physical doctor, um, this is about mental health and mental health uh, it's like trying to find a light switch in a dark room. You kind of you kind of feel around and you see what's there and eventually you stumble upon it. Hopefully it's quicker than longer, but I think a lot of people in this world just don't recognize the amount of work that goes into recovery and how it takes a very long time. I mean, the the reality Sam is that in some ways I am practicing my ongoing recovery with you right now talking about it for a while. You know, this is helping me as much as it's helping the people listen because it keeps pornography addiction top of my mind. Now, I don't do 12-step groups anymore. Um, I, I don't do, you know, online forums or online meetings anymore because I'm so busy with the other stuff that I'm doing. But we all have to find the mythology or methodology, I should say, uh, to get ourselves better. And the recovery journey is different for every one of us. 12, there are people in 12 step groups who swear that's the only way you can get better. Well, the fact is, it's the only way they could get better. There are people who are very, very spiritual who say you have to have a major God component to this. But I have seen plenty of people who are atheist and agnostic heal. What you need to do is try many different things, experience many different modalities of healing, and then create with the help of others create a plan for yourself that's going to work because all of our mental health is so different from one another compared to com, you know comparing our femur bones or our arm bones or whatever it is those are very similar mental health isn't the same way mm -hmm. now we don't have much time left and i just wanted to ask you uh, a question real quick uh, my last one and we've spoken a lot about recovery but with regards to prevention rather than cure, what do we need to do to protect future generations of kids avoiding developing unhealthy or addictive behaviors relating to porn, do you think? Uh, well, uh, the people who are adults or young parents now need to forget about the taboos of our parents or grandparents. Um, when you and I were growing up, uh, I'm guessing your your home was similar to mine, where parents and grandparents were probably far more conservative about sexuality uh, than you were, you are. But if you look at these uh, younger generations in their late teens, in their early 20s, the kinds of people who are going on websites like OnlyFans and actually making pornography, I believe that sexual attitudes 
um, and, and attitudes towards things like pornography have swung almost far too liberal. And what we need to do is find a happy middle ground that's actually healthy. And that's going to demand that we grow up, be adults, and talk about pornography. Because we're not going to be able to talk about pornography addiction if we can't talk about pornography. You and I have been talking now 45, 50 minutes. We've said the word pornography probably a hundred times. We have not got graphic. We have not talked about the content. We, it doesn't have to be a gross you know, conversation that's super uncomfortable. You can make it very age appropriate for children. You can tell your five-year-old child, hey, you know what? Uh, you, you're not allowed to look under other people's bathing suits and you shouldn't let people look under your bathing suit. And uh, don't ever let anybody take a picture of what's under your bathing suit. And you're not allowed to take a picture of what's under somebody else's bathing suit. Then maybe a year later, you say, hey, if you're with any of your friends and they have a phone or they have a tablet and you see pictures of naked people, you know, maybe they're hugging or maybe they look like they're wrestling, uh, please come and let me know because uh, kids shouldn't see that kind of stuff. And we want to make sure that you're safe. Young children want to know the right thing to do. Young children want direction. You know, telling them about pornography, you don't even have to use the word pornography, but educating them about pornography is educating them like how to cross the street or how to hold their fork. They don't have the taboos around it that older people do and older generations do. And what we need to do is stop trying to just put blockers on their phones and burying our heads in the sand. That's for the parents who don't want to deal with it. Blockers don't help actual people who need uh, the education. I guarantee you little Johnny or little Janie is going to be on the school bus someday and one of their friends is going to hold up their phone and show them whatever is on Pornhub that day. If you don't know what little Janie or little Johnny is going to say, you have not porn proof them at all. You have not educated them to porn at all. You know, you can't hope, uh, or I should say, it's not a matter of if your kid is going to see porn, it's a matter of when, and you need to talk about it. And don't make the mistake that the uh, pornography speech is the birds and the bees speech. It's not. It's different. It's like the, you, you shouldn't and you can't drink in my house speech. You can't smoke cigarettes in my house. When you get old enough, you can make your own decisions. But for now, we don't look at pornography in this house. And is your kid going to look at pornography? You know, especially when they're 13 or 14? Of course they are. They're completely normal to want to see a depiction of sexuality, especially when they hit puberty. Depictions of sexuality go back to cave painting days. Go to any great museum in this world. Go to their ancient and medieval exhibit. You're going to see some really X-rated stuff painted on the pottery. Depictions of sexuality are as old as, you know, hum humanity is, but we've never had an internet delivering us so many explicit images and videos as fast as they do today. And we have to react to this specific time that we're in. You know, my father tells me stories in the, about the 1950s and being in school and how they were waiting for the, you know, next world war and they would have air raid drills and hide under their desk. 
I don't know how a desk was going to save them from a nuclear bomb. That's a different conversation. But that's what they had to do in the 1950s. We don't have to do that now. But here we are in the 2020s. And this is where we find ourselves with pornography. So we have to educate our children about this differently. And maybe if we can do this, maybe if we don't have the Pandora's box aspect to this, and maybe if we can get high schools or, or, or even younger to spend one one hour period talking about pornography and talking about you know how it can be dangerous like they do with drugs like they do with alcohol maybe we'll see these numbers go down but we need the adults of this world the people who are in power the ones who are over 35 and 40 um, who didn't grow up with the internet um, who remember a time before the internet we need them to understand the problem so we can adjust how we're doing this in society because if we don't it's going to be another 20 30 years till those kids who are in high school now and who do take this seriously because i talk to them every day on tiktok until they're the decision makers we need the adults and the decision makers today to step up and be responsible and just because it might make them feel a little uh icky just because it may make them feel a little uncomfortable you cannot not talk about this with your kids or talk about it in society because it just doesn't make us feel good because we're seeing what 20 years of that has resulted in and it's higher numbers of sexual dysfunction and people who have completely warped views of sexuality than we've ever seen in the history of mankind well thank you for sharing that i hope that anyone listening that has to have this conversation with their children or wants to have it soon I hope that advice helps. And you also mentioned TikTok. I wanted to know if people are interested in learning more about you, where else can they follow you? How can they find you on social media? Is there a website you want to send them to? Yeah, absolutely. My website where you can learn about my books, you can learn about my coaching. I have a couple pages of resources. If if what I offer isn't what clicks with you, you know, that's no, you you should be able to find something else. So I have plenty of that on there. That address is the letter P, like pretzel or penguin or porn, uh, paddictrecovery.com. And then on all socials except TikTok, my handle is paddictrecovery. So whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Twitter, whatever, find me at paddictrecovery. Currently on TikTok, my name is that corn coach corn like the food you can't say porn on tiktok so <clears throat> the youngest generation has just co-opted the word corn and corn is now a code word for pornography um so i'm that corn coach um and if for any reason you depending on when you listen to this if you try to find me on tiktok and i'm not there under that name it's because tiktok is super 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 conservative when it comes to this stuff it's out of China. It reflects the Chinese culture. It reflects the Chinese attitudes towards sexuality uh, on the whole that are over there. So I have to be very careful of everything I say and do. I regularly have uh, people, you know, try to ban one of my videos because they don't like them. Now, 90% of the time, the video gets reinstated. But uh, in case somebody can't find me on TikTok, visit my Instagram, visit my website. I'll have whatever my current name is there. But TikTok by far has changed my professional life because it's a direct pipeline 
to that 18 to 30 year old crowd that takes this seriously and is looking for help and, and, and wants things to change. And that actually warms my heart that at least there is a generation coming uh, coming up and who will be the decision makers in this world soon enough that does see this as a problem because their parents and their grandparents are just burying their heads in the sand. I had no idea about that whole corn porn situation on TikTok. So <laughs> you're constantly teaching me something new. Oh my, you know what's, you know what's funny is I have a 20, I have a 22 year old son. I have 22 year old daughter, 19 year old son. And I've heard them say certain things around the house that I didn't understand. And since I've got on TikTok, <laughs> I know all of these new words. And I feel like, I'm, I feel like, you know, I'm a kid. I can talk like the kids do because, you know, I had no idea that a blue hat meant something was a lie if you see a blue hat in emojis it means that somebody just told a lie or somebody thinks somebody told a lie sounds like some kind of rosetta stone for the young <laughs> yeah it's it's a different language and i'm really glad that i'm learning it now mm -hmm. fantastic well joshua thank you so much for joining me today it's been a, a really insightful uh, conversation and i hope for our listeners it is uh open their eyes up to uh, this topic and just giving them more knowledge and information. So thank you so much. And again, Sam, thank you so much. There are uh, so many people who are still so scared to talk about this. I think pornography is one of those words that <clears throat> if you say it out loud, sometimes people are afraid. It sounds like a uh, some kind of tacit promotion of it. Even if you say I'm against pornography, oh, you said pornography out loud. You can't do that. You know, so thank you because there's still so many walls we have to break down. I appreciate you, uh, you know, exposing me to your listeners and letting, letting me explain some of this stuff. So thank you so much. Growing a company has many hurdles from securing funding to expanding your business capabilities to ranking better on search. Each business challenge is uniquely complex. The solution to these challenges is growth-focused digital PR and marketing, and that's where our sponsor Publicize comes in. Publicize sets itself apart from traditional PR companies. It does not charge large retainers or churns out press releases whether you've got a newsworthy announcement or not. Publicize builds on your business's online presence and gets high-quality PR and media coverage for startups and entrepreneurs who are priced out of a broken PR industry. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive a social media assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's publicize.co slash BBB. This is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you'll find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing what you have to say. So leave us a review on iTunes or on any other podcasting platform to let us know what you think. You can also reach out on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.